praise God. It's important that each and every one of us finishes the race. We are in a race. Uh, right now, there are two big things going on in the world. The biggest sporting event uh, in the world is happening today. That's the Super Bowl. The biggest, the most popular uh, worldwide competitive uh, deal that's going on right now is the Olympics. So it's kind of interesting that they're coinciding together. And in light of that, I want you to look at our verse today, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. And I want to talk about that in light of an event that we are in that just big time blows away the Olympics and the Super Bowl today. And that is the race for eternal life. Amen? I mean, these are temporal things. Who won the MVP for the Super Bowl in 1948? There wasn't. Jimmy, man, that's a trick question. Jimmy got it. Yeah, there wasn't a Super Bowl back then. They had championships. But uh, if there was, you wouldn't be able to remember the guy probably. You'd have to look it up. These things are, Tom Brady had, you know, we played a clip years ago. We played it it's in one of our exposés too. After he won, I guess, a couple Super Bowls, he's on 60 Minutes complaining that he's still empty inside. He doesn't understand. Got Super Bowl rings and I'm empty inside. That's because he needs Jesus, amen? And now, you know, He's retired, so I hope and pray he finds the Lord, you know. Uh, these folks that have these are getting these gold medals. It's awesome, you know, that you exert, and it's a great testimony to uh, discipline and effort, and there's a certain amount of joy in it of, of winning the medal, I'm sure. But compared to having Jesus, it pales. Those very medals, I mean, the people that are holding those medals and the songs are going off and they're celebrating— they're going to turn to dust pretty soon. The Bible says our lives are relatively quick. You know, we're like vapors. We appear for a while, then we're gone. And those metals won't even belong to them anymore. And it's really quite a tragic when you look at the big picture because we deal with this thing called sin and death. We want to make sure that we don't get a gold medal or a silver or a bronze in the Olympics. We want to make sure that we are declared righteous by God not condemned, and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our race. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen? That's what we want to make sure of. Amen? Now, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, you see those who inherit the new heaven and the new earth, those who crossed the finish line, if you will, those who are part of his eternal kingdom. In Revelation 21, verse 7, it says, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And these things are those things that were just enumerated in chapter 21. And I believe before that everything connected to the glorious kingdom of the Lord. But specifically, the first six verses where he describes the new heaven and the new earth and the coming new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. So in verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Can there be anything better than being saved by the blood of Christ and becoming a child of God? Oh, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God, 1 John chapter 3 says. 1 John, or not 1 John, but John 1, 12 says, as many as received him, he gave the right or the authority to become the children of God. If you've received Christ, you're a child of God, but you are in a race, okay? You're in a race. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, he that endures to the end will be what? Will be saved. So our, our Christian walk isn't a sprint up to an altar call. 
Our Christian walk is a marathon, and we must persevere to the end. And I persevered to the end in getting this message done after, you know, it was burned on my heart specifically because I've got a few messages I'm preaching in this verse I'm excited about. And I've been juggling them. And I was like, you know what? It's time to do this one. And I want to encourage you. And hopefully this will just really set your heart alight to realize how serious it is. That you need to make sure you're right with God. You make sure that you put the Lord and the prize of winning Jesus higher than everything. Because if uh, these guys that struggle to win the Olympic golds and so forth, do you think they just relax and just eat anything and just don't exercise and don't hone their craft and they just kind of wing it? No, <laughs> they don't, you know. And the, God, the Lord makes an argument, how much more serious should we be about eternal life? And this is important because verse 7 is contrasted with verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the what? Second death. So the second death is the opposite of where the overcomers are going. And notice they're overcomers, amen? 1 John 5, we overcome, it says, through our faith. Present tense faith there. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, and they, the believers, overcame, Satan is talking about, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, amen? That's the ground of our victory. And by the word of their testimony. And they love not their faith unto what? Unto death. Do you understand? Being an overcomer means that you hold to your faith until when? Until death. It's so clear. Yet, we have a lot of people telling us today, no, don't worry, as long as you went up to the altar call, you know, as long as you made it to an altar call or you made a decision to accept Jesus, you're fine. You don't have to persevere in your faith. You don't ever have a race that you have to, you know, win. Well, the Bible talks about how we're saved by grace through faith, amen? But faith isn't a one-time act. The Bible says the just shall what? Live by faith. But if he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. So we're saved by grace through faith. His grace, what Jesus did on the cross, should just stun you every day. And you should be thankful every day that you're able to be cleansed by his precious blood. Amen. That you're able to put your trust in him and have a relationship with him. And that he loves you and that he provided salvation for you. Amen. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful truth this is. And, you know, and I'm just kind of uh, like one of your coaches, you know, trying to encourage you to finish the race. Okay? And it's because I care about you. And I want what you want if you're a believer, which is to be with Jesus in the end. Amen? So we need to look at the scripture and say, okay, what is he teaching? What does it mean uh, to finish the race? What does it mean to overcome? Now, Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And it's interesting because in those days, in the days in which Paul writes this, uh, the Olympics were going on. I mean, it was something that was, took place all the time. 2,000 years ago, Olympics aren't new. You know that, right? It wasn't something started by, you know, the United Nations. Uh, the Greek games were going on uh, for 1,600 I'm sorry, 1,169 years straight. 
before they were abruptly stopped by the emperor Theodosius in AD 393. Wow. I mean, it's amazing when you think about how long uh, they were going on. So the Olympics were taking place, and they took place every, do you know how many years? Every four years. Way back then, right? Now they split the, uh, the you know, Winter Olympics with the Summer Olympics, so it's easier to manage, and something's going on every two years, and people don't have to wait so long. It's every two years. But these games have been going on for a long time. And one of the Apostle Paul's favorite illustrations for the Christian life was what? Athletics, right? He used them over and over again. Paul knew about athletics just like he knew about a lot of other things that were going on in uh, the Greco-Roman world. And he used athletics of those days as a picture of what we should be doing for Christ. Pretty powerful. I pray that the Father speaks to your heart through this. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. What's he talking about? I do all things for the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Well, what's the gospel? Well, the Greek word is euangelion there. It means the good news. Because I do everything for the good news that I might be a partaker of it. What's the good news? That we are saved, right? That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, right? And Paul mentions that and defines the good news of Evangelion, the gospel, as Jesus died for our scriptures or died for our sins. He died to give us scriptures as well, amen? We wouldn't have the New Testament if he didn't die. But that's not what I meant to say. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul says that we are being saved if we hold fast to that gospel, and for Paul to hold fast to the gospel meant, he goes on to say, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. So if he decides, I'm not going to obey God anymore, I'm not going to preach the gospel, I'm just going to do my own thing, and I'm going to become a reprobate and live a wicked life, well, guess what? For Paul, uh, well, that'd be a violation of verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become what? A fellow partaker of it, okay? He doesn't want to be in rebellion to God. He wants to make sure that he's Part, not only serving the Lord, because woe is judgment. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel and he doesn't become apostate. And then in verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you what? May win. So we need to make sure we run in such a way that we win this race that we're in. This should be a big, big deal to all of us. And you shouldn't just think, oh, I got the race won already because I entered into it. It's not the person that starts the race that wins. Amen? It's the one who finishes a winner. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we what? An imperishable. So the Olympians of his day, right, they exercise self-control and they were, I mean, I, I was going to, I thought about giving you a ton of illustrations about what Olympians do. But you pretty much know what Olympians do to a degree by now if you've been paying attention to the Olympics through the years. And I want to spend more time in Scripture about what we're supposed to do. So we can get into more Scripture today. But I want to import, I want to realize, get you to realize the import of this. Paul is saying that there needs to, that for him to win this prize, there needs to be self control and that we get this imperishable wreath the wreath that the olympians would get is perishable that it was made out of plants that wouldn't last 
very long, would it? Even the gold medals that they get today are perishable because according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, that there will be this cosmic meltdown where all the elements will melt in fervent heat and everything's going to burn in the end. And everything will be shaken according to Hebrews chapter 12 and only that which is unshakable, his kingdom, will stand and only those associated with his kingdom and part of his kingdom whose names are in the book of life and written in heaven will remain part of that unshakable kingdom. Verse 26, therefore, since this reality is true, and now Paul's giving himself as a prime example, okay? Therefore, I run in such a way as not without what? Aim. I box in such a way as not boxing or as not beating the air. Meaning I'm, I'm serious. I, I am focused. He wakes up in the morning. He goes, I'm focused on Jesus. I'm focused on the prize. I focus on finishing the race that God put before me. I'm not going to let anything deter me. And I'm not shadow boxing. I'm going for the knockout blow. And then in verse 27, he says, but I what? I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself would not be what? I myself will not be disqualified. Okay? These texts should not make us feel uncomfortable. If our theology is biblical, we'll say Amen. Amen, that's true. I'm going to persevere. I need to persevere so I'm not disqualified. I need to continue in the race. And he disciplines his body. Right? He makes it his slave. Interesting. In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how I die daily. Okay? Jesus said if we're going to be his disciples, we must what? Deny ourselves. How often does he say? Daily. It's serious. Take up our crosses and follow him. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And it's so serious that we get this right. Now, Paul is not just saying this in a vacuum. He's not just giving a testimony as to how he wants to make sure he's a partaker of the good news in the end. That he wants to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That he, he's not just talking about his own personal salvation. He's holding himself up as exhibit A. That we need to follow his example. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a couple chapters later, I'm sorry, the very next chapter, because, well, two chapters later, we're nine, going to be in 10 in a minute. He says what? Well, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of who? Of me, just as I also am of Christ. So guess what? We need to imitate him. Right? Do we, have we entered in the race? Do we want to be partakers of the, the good news? Amen. Do we want the imperishable wreath, eternal life? Yes. Hopefully, right? So we need to follow Paul's example, which blows me away. I mean, Paul wrote about half the New Testament. Paul was the most radical missionary that had ever lived. Mind-blowing. And doesn't mean you're going to write any scripture. We won't write any scripture. It's written, Amen. But it doesn't mean you're going to be the most radical missionary that ever lived. He's not calling you to follow that part of his example. Yeah, we should be missionaries, amen. And we should preach the word of God for sure. I mean, we're all missionaries as Christians. That doesn't mean we're involved in world missions going to the other side of the planet. But that means what? We're ministers of reconciliation. That's what it says all Christians are. Anyone who's a new creation, it says, is a minister of reconciliation. That means we're supposed to shine the light in some way as Christians, amen, and try to win people to Christ. The soul winner, the Bible says, is wise. But we need, in regard to salvation, to press on to the goal and to the high calling of Jesus Christ. And we need to take our salvation with the utmost 
seriousness. You see, Paul is dealing with a, some severe problems with the Corinthians. And many of them are in jeopardy of being put out of the race. So it's interesting because when you look at the context, Paul is clearly warning believers here. And I, I would say, don't you think Paul himself gives himself an example of one who needs to make sure he endures so he doesn't fall away? Do you agree that Paul is probably a believer? No doubt about it. Amen. You know, and A.T. Robertson in his word pictures in the Greek said, if Paul held himself up as one who was concerned about falling away, he said, how much more should we all be concerned? That's why Paul says a little bit later in chapter 10, let him who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest he fall. Well, those who think they stand are, who thinks they stand? Genuine believers think that for sure, right? We think we're standing in Christ. But we need to take heed so we don't fall. Paul took heed to where he died daily, to where every day he made sure he stayed focused on Christ. And this is critical because you go time without focus on Jesus and one day goes by and one day turns into another. Then another day turns into another. Then before you know it, you're not in fellowship anymore or your heart's not, maybe your mouth is there, but your heart's far from him. And you can become cold after a while and you can fall asleep. Just kidding. I saw someone messing around with someone. Uh, <laughs> So we have to be really, really careful, you know, and very, very wise about how we go forward. So Paul's dealing with some serious problems of people that won't win the prize, that won't end up in the kingdom potentially. Go to 1 Corinthians 6 a little bit earlier. Paul's dealing with people with lawsuits against their own brothers and sisters, dealing, un, uh, dealing unjustly. He's dealing with sexual sin. He's dealing with idolatry in the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, uh, in verse 8, he says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You, <laughs> you do this even to your brethren. He's talking to Christians. They're doing it to their own brothers, right? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, that's some serious, serious, serious language there. And the sad thing is, is there are many who think the race has already been won. They don't have to go forward. They don't have to be faithful to Jesus. I mean, that's taught today because there's a lot of bad coaches out there. Say, no, don't worry, you can sit home and never take another step for Jesus and you're fine. That's serious false teaching. You could be an, an adulterer, you could be a homosexual, you could be a swindler. And I'm not going to go into all those guys because I have their quotes, I've quoted them through the years, saying this is really wicked teaching, that you could live like hell and enter the kingdom of God. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. In other words, some people are going to try to deceive you. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's a very serious warning because the context here in chapter 5, right before this, Paul is dealing with the church of Corinth and he's dealing with a guy who's having sex with his mom, okay? He's having relationships with uh, a couple of kids just looked up. I'm sorry, man, but I've got to preach the word, man. And you obviously think they're old enough, so praise God. And we all need to hear this if we can understand it, I think, to one degree or another. If we don't understand, I'll just go like that. Praise God. And then we get older, hopefully we'll understand it but was having relations with his father's wife, okay? Whew, wow. And you know what? The church of Corinth is part of the problem because he said you ought to be mourning this because like a death has taken place. The word mourn, or like a word for funeral. But instead you're rejoicing as though you have this kind of liberty in Christ. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. 
And Paul says, I've already judged this, man. Have that guy excommunicated from the church. Lest, because a little bit of leaven, what does it do? Leaven's a whole lump. It'll affect the entire church like a cancer. It'll spread throughout the church because what will happen is not everybody's going to duplicate his sin, but people are going to think, well, I guess that's part of being a Christian. You could just do what thou wilt, man. Just do your own thing, and that's Christianity, and it's a lie. So right now, it's crazy because there's a spiritual war. So the, the, the metaphor of athletics isn't the only thing Paul uses. He talks about spiritual warfare often as well, right? And warfare. And we are in a real race, the race of salvation. We are in a real war, and it's a spiritual battle. And the enemy loves to come and say to us, Hath God said, thou shalt not surely die. And he says, you know, or basically says, you can't eat from every tree of the garden, and da 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 And he says, you shall not surely die. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 51, he that keeps my word will never see death. But now we're being told, if you don't keep his word, you shall not surely die. You've already prayed at the altar. You're good to go no matter what you do now. It's a lie from the pit, guys. So there's a lot of people that have already are losing the race by the millions in the church because of these doctrines that once you're saved, no matter what you do afterwards, you're always saved. Even if you stick your finger in the air, blaspheme God, and open a whorehouse and worship the devil. That's what many of these guys, these leading teachers, very popular teachers teach. Okay? So this is, this is bad coaching since we're using athletics. Really bad. Could you imagine the Super Bowl today? The Rams kick the ball off, right? And the game starts. The coach calls them aside and says, yes, we, you guys won. Let's go out and celebrate. Let's go to the locker room and pour champagne all over me as your great coach. And we'll just celebrate, give the game ball to the kicker. This is a great he kicked it out of the end zone. You know, the ball was placed at the 20. And the, what are the players doing? Wait a minute. It looks like we got we to finish the game. We, gotta, we just started the game. Nah. Once you are in the game, you're always in the game, and you're winners no matter what. That would be ridiculous. In fact, it would be, when it comes to salvation, that's actually evil because Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you by any means. By any kind of doctrine to make you think that no matter that once you've been saved, you're saved no matter what afterwards. You have a race to run. Amen. So Paul is very serious about this. And look at this, he's talking to saved people. Look at verse 11. Such were some of who? You. Right? What were they? They were adulterers, they were drunkards, they were revilers, they were, uh, you know, homosexuals, they were fornicators, thieves. But he says, Such were some of you, but you were what? washed but you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and in the spirit of our god but now he's concerned because guess what there's a real problem not just with that guy in chapter five right before that but he's concerned about others in the church of corinth who are getting involved in idolatrous practices who are participating in the worship of demons because they want to hang out with certain people or they want certain business uh, possibilities and are even getting involved in sexual sin with the temple prostitutes. In fact, look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are what? Members of Christ. Is he talking to Christians or non-Christians here? Christians, right? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Wow. You're joining a member, part of the body of Christ with a prostitute, he's saying. That's outrageous. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself with the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. He's definitely warning believers. This isn't warnings to non-believers, guys. It's warning to Christians. Some will say, oh, well, he's, he, when he gives those warnings, he's just talking about non-Christians. What? They have some doctrine to uphold. That's why they say that. It's not what the Bible teaches, okay? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. Meaning, you need to repent of visiting prostitutes. And if you are a believer today, and you're trusting and following Jesus, you don't take a member of his and sleep around. Amen? You have the Holy Spirit in you if you are a genuine believer. And your body is, and you are part of the body of Christ. You don't take part, you don't take that which belongs to Jesus and drag it into sexual sin with a prostitute or any woman. Well, what about my wife? Well, that's not sexual sin. The Bible says in chapter 13, verse 4 of Hebrews, the marriage bed is undefiled but adulterers and fornicators God will judge. So it's important, it's imperative that we guard our hearts, amen? And we don't fall for these popular lies today that the race has already been won, that we don't have to run, that we just have to ring a bell at the very beginning of our salvation. No. In fact, look at what he says in chapter 10, right after he talks about beating his own body down so he won't be disqualified. In chapter 10, Verse 19, what do I mean then? That, I, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I mean, an idol in itself, the physical thing is not anything. It's not going to hurt you in itself. And the, the thing that's sacrificed isn't going to hurt you. But this is what he's concerned about. But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to who? To demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become what? A share in demons. Okay. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So it's imperative that you understand that he's serious, that we still serve a jealous God, amen? And that we can't become idolaters and be involved in sexual sin and have communion with demonic entities who run this racket, okay? And think that we're okay or right with God. This is serious stuff. This is not long after it's in the context of Paul saying he beats his own body down. So, are you with me so far? Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You're in chapter 10, so just back up a chapter. Uh, Paul says in verse 27, But I disapply in my body that I, may, that I what? And I make it my what? my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 
Hmm. Disqualified. That Greek word is a strong Greek word. And I've done word studies more than once on this Greek word. And it's a simple word. It's adokamos. Adokamos. A-D-O-K-I-M-O-S. Okay? Adokamos. And the word dokamos, now this is adokamos with an A in front or an alpha in front in the Greek. Adokamos. Not adokamos, but the word dokamos simply means to be approved. Okay? It means to... Uh, be qualified. Adakamas means to be disapproved or disqualified. Dakamas is used of passing a test. Adakamas is used of failing a test. Okay? So, and this word was a very, very common word in those days. In fact, guess what? If you wanted your money to be approved, guess who you'd go to? You'd go to an approver who was called a, his, he would be a dakamas. Go into the dakamas. To make sure this silver has not been, you know, would not been cheated. For instance, let's say, you know, in those days what would happen is uh, when you looked at the coinage, they didn't have paper money that we have today, okay? So they used coins, and we still use coins today for a little bit while longer. We'll see how long that lasts now. But uh, they used coins, and that was their exchange, gold and silver, you know, and so forth. And what would happen is, let's say, for instance, you had silver coins and you sold something and you got 25 silver coins back. Well, they're silver coins. If you've ever seen the coins from those days, they're not super round, are they? And there was a concern because a lot of people, what they would do, thieves, is they would take coins and they would shave the edges off. And as they shaved edges off of a certain amount of coins, after a while, they'd have enough edges to melt them together and make more coins. Because the coinage in those days, they would get metal, they'd melt it, they'd put it in molds, and then they'd put it out in the exchange. Well, guess what? It comes out looking decent from the molds, but it gets kind of corrupted after a while because you have those who are shaving the coins to make money. So let's say, wow, you know, you sold a camel, you got 25 coins, you take these silver coins to the dakamas, and he would look at them and weigh them. Okay? And he'd weigh them because he'd know exactly what 25 silver coins should weigh. And if they weighed less than they ought to weigh, they were considered adakamas, disqualified, can't use these coins. Okay? And they would be what? Rejected. They would no longer be part of the Roman currency. Paul is saying, I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to cut off. I don't want to make shortcuts and cheat the Lord and do my own thing and claim to be following Jesus. Okay? So we, the Lord is the ultimate dakamas. Amen? He's the one, he says, that weighs the hearts. Amen? And we want to make sure that we're sincere before the Lord. And Paul is concerned because he's giving these warnings but when you get to, well, how, by the way, how is that Greek word used elsewhere by Paul? Well, the clearest place he uses it in relation to us and the Lord is very interesting because it's to the Corinthians again, and he's warning them because some of them have not yet repented, and they could come up a docamos at the final judgment. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the last verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the last verse. 
Paul says, I'm afraid, in verse 21, that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may what? Mourn. Remember he was saying they should be mourning over that guy involved in sexual sin, but they weren't. And Paul's concerned that people have not yet, because in this letter he goes on to talk about worldly sorrow leads to death, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life, right? And we need to have godly sorrow over sin, significantly enough, not be upset with our sins because we got caught doing something. Like a little kid who gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar and is, and is upset because he's crying all the way to his room because he's upset because he didn't get away with it. That's worldly sorrow, at least to death. Godly sorrow is when we realize, man, we broke the heart of God. We've sinned against the, the thrice holy God. We've committed high treason against our very creator and for us Christians, the redeemer of our souls. And we have godly sorrow. I'm sorry, Lord, I, I, I broke your heart. And that repentance leads to life. But evidently, some of these folks, Paul's concerned, have not mourned themselves and still haven't mourned, and he's going to mourn over them, just as they should have been mourning over that, that so-called brother who was in rebellion to the Lord, having relations with his father's wife. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God, I'm sorry, yeah, may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have what? Repented. Not repented of what? The impurity immorality and sensuality which they have what practiced everyone falls short every believer still falls short of god's glory we're not perfect amen but there's a difference from falling short of god's glory asking for forgiveness and going for the lord amen and practicing rebellion against god where you can care less about what he says and you're going to do your own thing and you live a life of rebellion against him anyway that's serious stuff and paul's concerned about that because that's the opposite of, and by the way, don't let anybody tell you repentance does not entail leaving a life of sin behind you. Because these folks have what? They haven't yet repented of what? He enumerates their sins of sensuality and so forth. So it is a change of heart, a change of mind, right? We're saved by grace through faith. But that change of heart and change of mind, there'll be fruit from that, which is what? Rejecting a life of rebellion against him and no longer living in that rebellion. So... He's really concerned about this. And this is the opposite of passing the test, amen? Well, look at what he says in chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. You're supposed to test yourselves. Examine yourselves. He says it twice. Test yourselves. In other words, guess what? Do this before God weighs your heart, and it's too late. Before you face the ultimate dokamas. Test yourselves, verse 5, to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. He lives in you. Unless, indeed, you what? Fail the test. By the way, what do you think? There's three words that translate one Greek word. Fail the test translates one Greek word. What do you think it is? What do you think it is? You'd be right, a dokamas. You pass that test. Same word. And the context is breathtaking because the context is Paul's addressing those who need to make sure that they 
they, they abandon their idolatry. They abandon their sexual sin. He gives himself as an example. I beat myself down so I don't become a dokamas. Amen? So I finish my race. But he's concerned about them. And he says, be imitators of me. And then in 2 Corinthians, he's concerned. He goes, there's some there have still, I'm concerned that haven't repented. Test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Christ is in you. Jesus lives in you. Unless you are what? A dokamas. To be a dokamas is not simply to be put out of service and put on the shelf and just lose some rewards, folks. Thus saith the word of God. It's to be without Jesus. It's to be without Christ. So when Paul says, I beat my body down, right? And I run the race to win, that I might have, get the prize, right? And so that after preaching to others, I myself will not become what? A dokamas. What does he mean? He means so I won't become what? Without who? Without Jesus, Okay. It's as clear as day. I know it's not, I know it's not as a popular teaching today because it doesn't tickle our ears. doesn't make us feel good like we can just do whatever we want and just lose some rewards or maybe God takes us to heaven earlier. I know that's not true. I know that's not the case. But I, I, I serve an audience of one, man. We preach Jesus and we preach his word right off the page. And this was a teaching, by the way, of the early church. In fact, one reformed professor says for 15, first 1,500 years of church history, you know, you don't see this idea that once you're saved, you're always saved no matter what. He's a Reformed professor, Calvinist. And by the way, a lot of Calvinists like John Piper and others will agree that a docomos, the best definition of a docomos, as he says, is 13.5 of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 9. I agree with him. I just saw that recently. I'm like, oh, wow, he agrees on that. Good. So I don't always agree with John Piper, especially his Calvinism, but I'm like, but he'll warn at times, which I'm, I'm very appreciative of that those guys do that. But they also need to get right in some other areas like not having Rick Warren at your conferences. Anyway, I digress. But I want to encourage you guys to, to just let the Scripture speak to you. Amen? And recognize the seriousness of what Paul is talking about. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Wow. Serious stuff here, guys. Gregory Lockwood, uh, a commentator in, his, in the uh, Concordia Commentary on 1 Corinthians, writes this. By thus disciplining himself, of 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, by thus disciplining himself, Paul, Paul's faith was active in loving service to all. If he were to live a life of self-indulgence, he would endanger not only the salvation of others, but also his own. The danger of being disqualified is real. Disqualification could mean nothing less than missing out on the crown of eternal life, as the context makes clear. And he cites 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. The implication for the Corinthians, he writes, should be obvious. It would be a tragedy if they forfeited their salvation by ceasing to exercise self-control and thus relapsing into idolatry. Paul will now elaborate the message in 1 Corinthians 10. Christians must consistently exercise self-control or discipline, restraining their sinful nature and putting to death by the power of the Spirit so that they may live for God now and in eternity. That's solid biblical commentary on that. Now, uh, it's critical when we look at the context that we see what's happening there, okay? Because we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at the very last verse, right? But I discipline my body. 
and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And I love the reference he gave there because I'm like, man, he knows what he's saying because I use that same reference a lot in Romans 8, 12, and 13. Brethren, we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, do crucify or mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Amen? That's a life of faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not, of, not by works. But as we trust Christ in faith, amen, if we're surrendering to him in faith, guess what's happening? We're allowing the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, to crucify our flesh as we, what? Cooperate with the Spirit's work in our lives through faith in Christ. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. And Paul's going to make it very clear in chapter 10, because he's going to say in a few verses that every one of us can win the race. We just have to want to. We just have to really want to in our hearts. Just like you wanted to be saved and you turned to Jesus. Because he's going to say in verse 13, there's no temptation that's taking you that is not common to man, right? But God is faithful, who with the temptation will also give you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So it's not like you sit there like, oh no, oh no. No, the, con the question is, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to persevere to the end? Do you want to stay on the narrow road that leads to life? The choice is up to you. The provision of salvation has already been made by God's grace by giving us Jesus through the cross, Amen. And he's the one that provides the narrow road. He's the one that provides the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us on that road, amen? You have to grieve the Holy Spirit, rebel against the Lord God, insult the Spirit of grace, and rebel and turn away from the Lord to get back on the broad road. It's not something that just happens one day. It's something that you decide to do. I'm not one who believes that you just sin and you've, you, know, you forfeit your salvation. But I do believe the Bible says that you can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and that you can depart from the faith. Okay, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by faith, okay? If you're trusting Jesus, right, and he's your Lord, right, you're trusting Jesus for your salvation, you're saved, okay? But the Bible warns that we need to continue in the faith. And getting our eyes off of Jesus onto ourselves and going back to the broad road is the opposite of faith, okay? So keep your eyes on Jesus. It's that simple, amen? Continue to follow him. So it's important that we get this. It's important that we understand this. And now let's look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now keep in mind, this comes right after verse 27 of chapter 9, that Paul doesn't want to be what? Disqualified. So he beats his body down. And now there's no chapter breaks. Do you think Paul wrote a big 10 there in Greek? No, there's no chapter breaks. Look what he goes on to say. He goes on now to go from his example to the example of how God saved people out of Egypt. And then what happened to them because they didn't finish the race? Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were what? Baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's saying, he's drawing a line saying, hey, I want you to look at what happened to these guys. Because you're like, oh, hey, we're saved, man. We've been baptized. Praise God. And he's going to say, where are you at now? What happened to them afterwards? Look at verse 3. And all ate the same what? Spiritual food. What did they eat? What did God give them from heaven? Manna. Amen. Gave them manna, which was a picture of who? Jesus. Jesus is manna from heaven. The, 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 the heavy thing to me is that Paul argues from the lesser to the greater. We have greater experiences than they had. Amen. But verse 4, look at this. 
and all drank the same spiritual drink. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was who? Christ. The rock that they got this living water that flowed out of so they wouldn't die and perish in the wilderness. That was a picture of Jesus. It was a picture of them not only being baptized and partaking of his flesh, but also partaking of the Spirit of God. They had all these wonderful experiences. Verse 5, though, very sad verse. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of all those wonderful salvific experiences, with most of them, God was what? Not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Wow. Boom, wiped out. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would what? Not crave evil things as they also craved. Paul is giving an example of what we should be. Amen? They're giving examples of what we should not do. Amen? Notice the two different things. You know you're going to serve God one way or another as a saved person or a lost person? Well, how am I going to serve as a lost person? If you reject the Lord, you don't follow him, you'll serve as a, an example or as a warning. If you're like Paul, you continue, you'll serve as an example of what we ought to be doing, amen? An example of following Jesus. If you reject him, I don't want anything to do with the Lord. Now you serve as a warning of what not to do. Isn't that interesting? Either way, God uses everything for his glory. And you'll just be one of those where, like Judas... Where, well, and it's heartbreaking that, that that happens of what somebody shouldn't do. Or Demas, who in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Don't do that, man. Don't go back to the world. Don't go back to the flesh. Don't go back to the devil. Praise God. I hope, I hope your guy does good today, bro. Ronald just came in. He's wearing a Cooper Cup shirt. Cooper Cup's a pastor's kid, so I have like an affinity for him, you know. Uh, anyway but he needs to finish both races not just the Super Bowl you'll, you'll hear when you hear the message but praise the Lord bro okay so it's important it's imperative for all of us that we recognize the, Paul's an example but these guys are examples I love the Lord gives me an example like wow I can look at Paul and say man he just blows me away Whenever I think, man, I'm working so hard, and, and I look at Paul, I'm like, I'm not doing anything, man, compared to what Paul did, you know? Just blows me away, you know? And then when I look at what these guys did, I'm like, how could you? And then I'm like, oh, be careful. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because Peter's like, they might all fall away from you, but I'll never do it. He didn't take heed, and he denied the Lord three times. We got to take these warnings seriously. I'm only going to spend a few more minutes on the warnings of what not to be because I want to look at what to be because there's other passages where Paul uses these examples and the New Testament does and to encourage you. But it's, a, we, it's important to use Paul's examples of failure too. Do not be idolatrous, verse 7. And that's the problem the Church of Corinth is dealing with because they live in a country that is very, or I should say in Corinth, a city that's a lot like, could be called First Californians instead of First Corinthians. If you've studied the letter, I mean, they're a port city. They're incredibly rich, affluent, uh, influential and others around them and so forth, other cities and so forth, full of paganism, full of idolatry, full of sexual sin and perversion, like Los Angeles, man. And it was all around them. So the temptation was real. And the temptation is all around you, not even if you just live in California like we do, but just if you have the internet, if you have, you know, 
television, you know, if you have music and radio, and they didn't even have those things, and they were, there was a danger, amen? How much more do we need to be on guard that we're not letting our hearts get filled with junk, amen? So I challenge you in the name of Jesus Christ to cut yourself off from those influences that would tempt you to, to, to lead you astray, that would, would, would fan the flames of your flesh. It's not worth it, man. Salvation is forever. So it's, it's quite interesting. He gives these examples. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And I've gone through this passage before and went back to the Old Testament and looked at the examples and ferreted them out. We don't have time to do that, but, verse, but we'll just get the gist of what Paul's saying here because Paul doesn't explicate other than just drawing a line there. Verse eight, nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. 23,000, man, God wiped out, boom, 23,000 dead in one day. Wow. Verse nine, nor let us test or try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Wow. Nor let us grumble as some of them did. Don't be a whiner. Don't be a whiner, man. Start being thankful for what the Lord's done in your life. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Wow. In case we missed why Paul is going through these things, look at verse 11. He already mentioned this, but he mentions it again. Now these things happened to them, what? As an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands, that's all genuine believers think they stand, take heed that he what? Does not fall. We need to pay attention. If Paul, again, A.T. Robertson, the, perhaps the greatest American Greek scholar ever, if the apostle Paul, was concerned about finishing his race, how much more should we, okay? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Fall. The Bible warns about falling away. Jesus said in the last days, many would fall away. And guess what? We are entering in a time period where Big Brother is squeezing Christians. Isn't it true? I mean, just look at the vaccinate, vaccination mandates, right? If you had convictions that, and some Christians have convictions that Shouldn't take any vaccination. That's, that's between them and the Lord. But guess what? That means there was a major squeeze on you, okay? Other Christians are like, well, I believe certain vaccinations, but this one I don't want, right? This one was, and some are like, no, it was tested with babies. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't created through uh, aborted babies, but it was tested. They were, all three of them were. They were saying two at first, but all three were. So we said, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, now you can't what? Buy or sell or can't go to certain restaurants and like, L.A. even, for a while, right? And who knows where this is going. What I'm saying to you, and I'm not saying this is the mark of the beast. I don't believe it's the mark of the beast. And I believe those who are condemning people saying it's the mark of the beast are, are and saying, this, you got the mark of the beast if you have it, are, doing, are teaching false teaching, okay? And it's very, very serious, okay? And to me, that's the cowardly thing, to go up to an old lady and, not, and then infect her because you just flaunt your liberty and maybe give her, uh, you know, uh, COVID because you think it's no big deal and then she dies. That's wrong too. Amen. So we want to actually say, hey, you know what? I'm going to make sure I serve Jesus and I don't intentionally or that I'm not unloving with regard to the, how I deal with this disease either. But at the same time, what's happening now, you're getting a little bit of feeling of what's going to happen when the mark of the beast actually does come out. Where it's the number of a man, 666, you can't buy or sell. How many people are going to give in and saying, well, I can still do this. And I can tell you right now, top teachers like Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, right? You can take the mark of the beast. You'll still have the seal of God on your forehead, though, if you take it, right? And others, you can repent later. Or, or like the guy that wrote Ragamuffin Gospel. 
It's very popular among the emergents and not just emergents. Christianity Today promoted the ragamuffin gospel. He says, God's saying, come now all you, you know, prostitutes and all you that have the mark of the beast and come into my kingdom is what the Lord will say in the end. I'm like, what in the world? It's, there's so much false teaching going on right now, guys. But Paul says these things happen as examples so we'll know that this is serious. He already said a few chapters earlier, don't be deceived. These kinds of folks won't inherit God's kingdom, right? He's not talking about, again, just being put on the shelf for a while or losing some rewards or getting taken to heaven earlier. No, he's talking about not entering God's kingdom, not inheriting God's kingdom. Therefore, let whom he th thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And I love verse 13. No temptation, not any temptation, not one, has overtaken you, but such as is what? Common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Can you say thank you, Lord? You need to trust him for that too. But with the temptation, because he doesn't tempt us. The Bible says, let no one say, say when he's tempted, this is in James chapter 1, verse 13, that I'm being tempted by God. Because God is, cannot be tempted and God will not, cannot tempt anyone. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. He's perfectly loving, perfectly, but he allows it to test us. And when Satan brings temptation or you're tempted by your flesh and drawn away and enticed by your own lust, he gives you a way of an escape that you may be able, what? To bear it. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Guess what? They didn't have to grumble in Egypt. You don't have to grumble you can praise God instead. They didn't have to get involved in sexual immorality. They could have beat their bodies down and looked to the Lord. Amen. They didn't have to worship idols and bow down before them. They could decide to worship God instead. Even when life got rough in the wilderness, say, I'm going to trust him and be thankful and grateful that he provides me manna, that he gave me water from the rock, that he saved me from the Egyptians, that the blood of the lambs, in that case, their case, the Old Testament, the Passover lambs, that he provided salvation for me. How much more should we say thank you, Jesus, that I have the manna from heaven, you, that you, the God-man, died in my place, took all my sins upon you. I'm gonna be faithful to you no matter what temptation comes my way, amen? So we need to make sure that we understand that, that we rejoice in that. What's the prize? What's the prize? Verse 24, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may seize it. What's the prize that we get? Paul makes it clear in Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal. Another athletic picture, by the way. I press on toward the goal for the prize. The, by the way, this Greek word that Paul uses for prize in 1 Corinthians 9.24, only used one other time in the whole Greek New Testament. It's here in Philippians that I'm reading right now. Paul says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's the heavenly call, man. It's a call to heaven. It's Jesus Christ. Amen. The way, the truth, and the life. He is our prize. Amen. He is our salvation. Amen. So I love what Paul says there. Okay. In fact, I'm sorry, but gold medals are nothing compared to Jesus. So I'm really not sorry at all. Just saying, hurt your feelings for a second. It's an expression. You know, feel sorry for you if you think they are. But the truth is, is, well, Zephaniah 1.18 says, Your silver and gold will not save you on the day of the Lord's anger, for the whole land will be devoured by fire and jealousy. In fact, guess what? Ezekiel 7.19 says of the day on judgment, 
of judgment. They will throw their gold and silver away in the streets like garbage because their silver nor gold can, their silver, neither their silver nor their gold can save them from uh, when the Lord pours out his fury. Can you imagine people throwing away their gold? You know, gold, metal, silver, save me. It's no good. Yeah, you need to put your faith in Jesus. That's where the true riches are, guys. If you're a believer, you should say, you should be thanking God, man, I got way more than gold medals. Could you imagine having won five gold medals? Honestly, 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 that would be awesome for somebody. Not my desire, but I'd far more rather, would far much more rather have Jesus. And just getting into his kingdom is enough for me to have way more joy than that. Amen. Just getting, just being a, a doorkeeper out of the threshold of his kingdom would be more than enough of a blessing for me. I'd be thankful to get in, amen? But you have far more because we're joint heirs with Christ and we'll sit with him on his throne, it says. That's what the promises are for the overcomer. Revelation chapter three. Wow. Wow. Now, Philippians chapter three, if you can go there quickly. Verse seven. Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in, the, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul was the most praised young Pharisee among the Pharisees. He was called the Pharisee of Pharisees. He says, I count that as lost. He had the gold medal of being a young Pharisee. I count that as a loss, he says, uh, knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord is far better, he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, now this is heavy, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So even gold medals are rubbish for Paul compared to having Christ. Do you understand that? We need to have the same values the Lord has and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes by God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformed to his death. In order, listen to this. Why do you want to do that, Paul? Why are you going for it? Why are you counting that as Why are you on this race? Why are you going forward to get the prize? In order that I may attain, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Wow. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize, for the prize, same Greek word, First Corinthians chapter uh, 9, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. By the way, why is he pressing on? That I might attain to the resurrection. Well, isn't everybody resurrected? Yes. Paul used an interesting Greek word here though. Okay. The Greek word he uses is very, very interesting. Before the word for resurrection, the Greek, he uses the preposition ek. Ek, E-K, ek. Anybody remember what that preposition means? Out. Out. Amen. Very good. Out from. Very good. Get with your Greek there. Uh, out from or the out resurrection. So if you translate it literally in the Greek, it would say out resurrection. So he wants the, to have the out-resurrection. A.T. Robertson, who I quoted earlier, the Greek scholar, has been dead for years, American Greek scholar, quote, apparently Paul is thinking here only of the resurrection of believers out from the dead. And so double X. Interesting. Paul is not denying the general resurrection by this language, but by emphasizing that of believers. Interesting. Interesting. 
Charles Ellicott's commentary she wrote was way back in, I think, 1865. Uh, he's not around either right now. He says, the resurrection from the dead, i.e., the context suggests the first resurrection when the Lord's coming, uh, uh, when the Lord, when at the Lord's coming, the dead in him shall rise first. Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? The dead in Christ will rise what? First, right? And then we who believe, we caught up with them in the air. That's the ek resurrection, okay? Uh, and it's interesting because the Joseph Bryant Roth, Rotherhams emphasized the Bible. This was done in the 1800s too. It's kind of interesting. Joseph Bryant Rotherhams emphasized Bible translates 311 this way. If by any means I may advance in the earlier resurrection, which is from among the dead. And that's because this term, ex-resurrection, that would be used of somebody who rose early in the morning, you know? And I like that. It's a beautiful picture of, for those of you who are trusting Jesus, if you're not trusting Jesus, you don't want to be in the second resurrection. You want to be in the first resurrection, amen? You want to trust Jesus and make sure you're in the early resurrection. You're in the first resurrection. You're in the ex, uh, ek Anastasia, Anastasis, not the just regular general resurrection of the dead because in Revelation chapter 20 it talks about those who've gone through the tribulation period and have been persecuted and so forth and actually it mentions three groups if you pay closely close attention to the language those on the throne those who were, were persecuted for the word of God those who didn't take the mark of the beast three groups okay but all will reign with Christ Jesus says if you suffer with him you'll reign with him amen and all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, it says. So everybody's going to reign with him, all genuine believers. Amen. Well, guess what? It says that when Jesus Christ comes back, Revelation 19, these guys, all of them partake of the, calls it the first resurrection. Okay? And then it's not until after a thousand years, because Satan's bound, a thousand years goes by, and after that thousand years, there'll be the resurrection of the wicked. In verses 11 through 15 of Revelation chapter 20, everyone, the books are open in the book of life and everyone's name who's not found written in the book of life is thrown in the lake of fire, okay? And burned forever. So you don't want the second resurrection. You want to be in the out resurrection. And Paul goes for the prize. What's the prize? Just like it's, it's Christ and it's the out resurrection. Just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 10, 9, it's what? It's the What? It's, it's Christ, like Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, but it's what? The imperishable wreath. Jesus is our life, amen? He is the resurrection and the life. Our prize is Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, amen? Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, listen to this. I know your tribulation, because Paul wants the crown that's imperishable. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. It's a suffering church. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the what? Crown of life. There it is. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Notice what's going on there. Jesus is the resurrected one, by the way, and how he describes himself to the churches here. He's the one who lives. He's going to give them life. That's how he describes himself. They're, they're going to be partakers of the first resurrection. They're going to receive the crown of life. Amen. And not be hurt by the second death, which comes over a thousand years later. They will be part of the ek resurrection, the ek anastasis. Now, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, 
He warns the church of Philadelphia, I come quickly, hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Okay? And uh, I don't have time to get into that whole thing there because there are a lot of things I want to say about that church as well. But there's two resurrections. And those, the dead in Christ rise first and then we believe caught to meet the Lord in the air. That's the first resurrection, folks. And by the way, the first resurrection happens before the tribulation or at the end? It happens at the end. It includes those who didn't take the mark of the beast. That's obviously the end. And when Christ comes back, Revelation 19. So obviously, there, if, if, the, if there was a pre-trib rapture, that would be the second resurrection. And then the resurrection in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, of the wicked would be the third resurrection. Amen? But the Bible specifically says at the end of the tribulation period, this is the first resurrection, showing there was no resurrection at seven years earlier in some pre-trib rapture. But I digress again. Okay. Now, take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 35. This is a very interesting verse. It's talking about, this is the great Hall of Faith chapter, amen? Not Hall of Fame chapter, way better than any kind of Hall of Fame. Hollywood Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame. This is the Hall of Faith, man. Eternal. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their what? Their release. They could have been released. All they had to do was deny Yahweh. They didn't. They didn't accept their release so that they might what? What does it say? So that they might obtain a better resurrection. They wanted to be in the out-resurrection. The ekonostasis, amen? Resurrected from the dead among the righteous. Because Daniel said in Daniel 12, then shall come forth, he said, talked about those who be raised to life and those who be raised to eternal contempt. Jesus talked in John 5, 28 and 29, uh, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. The re resurrection, those that have done good, he said, and the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. There's two different resurrections separated by a thousand years. And in Hebrews eleven thirteen, we read about those in the hall of faith. What does it say of these in the hall of faith? All these what? What does it say? Hebrews 13, Hebrews 11, 13. All these died what? They died in faith, amen? They died in the faith. They kept their faith. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 now. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's that cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, okay? What, what a great bunch of witnesses they are. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Don't let sin keep you from finishing your race. Don't let encumbrances that you might not even think are sin. Well, I'm not sinning anymore. I'm just, I'm just, you know, catching fish on Sunday mornings now. Well, guess what? That becomes sin where you're forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. And you're not in fellowship anymore. You're saying one time when I went fishing? No. But it can become that. Be careful. Amen. And the sin that so easily entangles us, the last sin that was mentioned is in chapter 11 that Moses rejected because he could have been considered Pharaoh's main man, right? But he said he forsook the pleasures of Egypt, right? And suffered the shame of Christ because he was looking for a city that's not built with hands, amen? Let's keep our eyes on that city and not go back to the world. Verse two, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All is about Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for, uh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our example par excellence. Amen? For consider him who has endured such a hostility of sinners against himself, so that you what? Will not grow weary and lose heart. So he's telling us, guess what? 
we have a race to win as well. Like Philippians, right? Like 1 Corinthians 9. Here in Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, right? And look at chapter 11, verse 23. Well, don't go there, but that's where it talks about Moses' sin. Because I want to finish this up with a few more scriptures. Look at chapter 12, a little further down, verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are, be- that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet. Because he's talking about running the race to win again in Hebrews. That's set before us, following Jesus' example. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which what? No one will see the Lord. You got to finish the race. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Do not let bitterness overtake your heart. Do not let Satan use your heart to overcome other people's hearts to where they become bitter because they become infectious, it says. But look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith. And what's the goal? Look at verse 22. Amen, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. That's the finish line, man. And to the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and a myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. Unlike the firstborn who gave up his birthright, he mentions earlier, Jesus is our example, not Esau. Like the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, verse 24. And to Jesus, and to Jesus, the mediator of the, a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of better than the blood of Abel, verse 25. See to it, see to it, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that means that Mount Sinai is the context, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Wow. That's our finish line. But over and over again, whether it's Philippians, Paul wants to attain to the resurrection. Okay? And that's why 1 Corinthians, he beats his body down. Amen? And in Hebrews, we got this group surrounding us, man. We're in the ultimate Olympics right now, guys. Spiritual Olympics. Amen? And I love how it ends. How Paul's race ends. How does it end? Well, in Timothy, he tells Timothy of a couple of men like Hymenaeus and Philetus who, who shipwrecked their faith. And he tells Timothy that he's supposed to f- fight the good fight. Amen? And keep the faith in light of that in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19 and 20. But then in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy. Then in 1 Timothy 6, 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life. He's used, now he's back to the boxing metaphor. And then, guess what? He wraps it all together in 2 Timothy, his last letter before he dies, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, right? He says, I'm being ready to be poured out as a drink offering. He's going to lose his head to Nero. He didn't give in, man, to the temptation. He didn't give in to the idolatry. He didn't give in to the sexual sin. He didn't give in to the murmuring, the complaining, and whining. If anyone could whine, you'd think it would be Paul. But he said this, I have what? I have fought the good fight, Amen. He said, I fought the good fight. He said, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I finished the race. Therefore, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. Amen? Amen. He finished. Because he looked to Jesus. Amen? You finish. You look to Jesus if you want to finish. Amen? And you look to Paul and follow him as he followed Christ. 
And you look to what happened to those who fell away, and you say, uh-uh, I'm not going that route, amen? And when you finish, not only will the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant to you, you'll bring many with you in your wake, as you've set an example for them as well. Hopefully, some of your children, all of them, hopefully, amen, but many others as well. Let's set a great example for those, our young people, those around us, other believers. But let's hold fast to the faith. Let's lay hold on eternal life. Let's fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life. And let's hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Amen. Let, let us all please stand.